Welcome to Safe Space. In this first recording of Safe Space, we will introduce you to the initiative that we started together with Trum for Künstler Architecture in the summer of 2020 in Oslo. Through these conversations, we aim at bringing up the subject of diversity and representation in the field of architecture in Norway in a meaningful way. We want to take the time to talk and listen to the wide range of speakers, from students to teachers, activists to practitioners, that were invited to take part in the project. To discuss the origins of the project, we invited Gabriel Paré, a Canadian Oslo-based artist and program coordinator at Room, who was Safe Spaces project manager, and Tina Lam, an urban planner, graduated from NMBU, the Norwegian University of Life Sciences, who has been advising us along the way as part of the team at Room. The lack of discussion around the culture in our profession leads to the reproduction of systems of oppression that we have to address collectively. Long overdue, we hope that this conversation series can resonate with you all and make you reflect on what we can do differently and better in order to make architecture the radically inclusive discipline it needs to be. The discussion in this prelude is moderated by Safe Space Collective's member, Bouy-Cuisson, Paul-Antoine Lucas, and Armel Bray. We apologize for the quality of the sound in this episode. Recorded in June 2021 at home, we didn't yet have the appropriate equipment and setting for an optimal sound quality. We hope you'll still get to learn from this insightful conversation. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so great to have you all here today. It's nice to have the chance to talk about ideas. Maybe we we can go around the table and present ourselves. So my name is Wu Kui Son, or simply Son. I'm Vietnamese. I was born in Hai Phong and raised in Hanoi. I moved to Paris uh, when I was 18 to study architecture, where I did my bachelor's. And then I did my master's uh, in architecture in at the Royal Danish Academy in Copenhagen. And uh, I moved to Oslo about three years ago to start working as an architect, then landscape architect. And now I am I'm starting to launch my own practice of art and architecture. Hi, my name is uh, Paul Antoine. I'm a French architect. I studied in Paris and also for masters where I graduated in 2018. I now work in Oslo as an architect and I'm uh, part of the Safe Space Collective. I'm the last member. I'm uh, Armé Breuil and I was born and raised in France where I studied for the license and then the undergrades and then uh, I studied also in uh, Spain and uh, Singapore and I came to Oslo in 2015 where I worked at uh, Space Group and um, now I'm trying to launch my own practice since uh, October, basically trying to tackle climate crisis, ecological collapse, feminist topics and uh, other things I'm quite active on in this practice as well. So my name is Tina, I am uh, born and raised in Norway, although my parents are from Vietnam. I study city planning at NMBU. It's a master's. I work at the room for uh, Kunstarkitektur and I'm freelancing at Allup at the moment. Hello, my name is Gabrielle. I'm originally from Canada, but I'm currently based in Oslo, Norway. I also work as an artist, um, but I'm currently working as a program coordinator at Rome for Kunstarkitektur with Tina. With you guys, I, I'm your project manager. Well, thank you very much for being here. Today in our setup, we're at home to record this introduction for Safe Space. We wanted to have the first uh, recording with you guys because we want to kind of introduce the project, the origin of the project and 
talk about also room and your personal agenda regarding that project that we feel that uh, is really relevant to yeah, introduce that. I guess we should start at the beginning. I mean, about a year ago, Rome posted a black square on its Instagram profile, which of course we know is part of the Black Lives hashtag Black Lives Matter movement. This this gesture of quieting your own channel, your own voice, and allowing other voices to be heard. Um, which is it was this trend on Instagram where everyone was posting this black square and. Rome also did this in solidarity with that movement. Um, and I think, I remember we had a team meeting a few days after that black square was posted. And it was really a discussion, okay, we made this gesture, we made this statement of solidarity. How do we follow up on that? How do we make sure that this is not just some kind of superficial performative gesture and then we go back to programming as normal. Yeah, that was our number one concern, I think. I don't remember who posted that black square. Was it you? No, it wasn't me. I thought it might have been you. No, it was me. Yes, it was me. Uh, I didn't ask the boss if that was okay. I, I just did it. But we made it very clear during that meeting that this is not something we can just do and then then we're done with it. It has to be something more long-lasting. It needs to be something that would take the... Um, the topic more uh, more seriously and really look at ourselves as an institution uh, looking back at who we exhibited, who we let voice and who we didn't, who feel safe at Rome to come and visit. So I guess that's how this started. Mm-hmm. Well, after that, Rome published an article by you also yes. and uh, wondering if you could talk a little bit about also that context. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually started before the protests if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, if, if I remember correctly. It started out as an informal exercise where I was tasked with, uh, I guess, seeing the, um, uh, the media field concerning uh, architectures. It was looking for what kind of magazines there were out there, mostly online websites. When I did that and canvassing what's out there, I realized how homogen it was so the yeah everything was the same it was the same voices it was the same stories so it was um, a little diversity which was something i just casually mentioned in an email i think and then yatrud asked me if i wanted to uh, write a bigger piece on it which i agreed to so this was on me and and then it just became bigger than than i had anticipated i did have second thoughts about writing it because it's um it's really uh not a cool subject <laughs> to to write about but um it felt that i felt that if i didn't say yes now i would never be able to to bring it up again so that's why i agreed to to write the text Gertrude Steinsbog who you mentioned um she's the director at at Rom she she commissioned you for Rome Forlog to write this text. Can you talk a little bit more about points you were raising in, in the text itself? Well, first of all, I wanted to, to talk about representation and, and, and diversity. I was essentially critiquing the institutions of, um, of being too white, 
essentially. I was calling out a culture that would reproduce old ideas and reflecting the people who already had the power. I was looking at everything from articles about interior design and it would be the, the same living rooms, the same kitchen, the same cabin. I, I was missing stories about people that looked like my parents, that looked like my friends from the Middle East. Just had like other backgrounds that were also Norwegians, uh, hence the title the from the other Norwegians. Yeah, and also calling calling out the lack of representation essentially. After publishing your text, Room put out a, an open call titled uh, We Need to Talk About Diversity and Representation in the Field of Architecture in Norway in August 2020. We instantly teamed up with Bonal Toan and Amen to respond to this call because it felt not only important but almost intuitive. I think we were all very personally affected by the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020, even though it had started back in 2013. But there were a lot of reasons for that, with the lockdown and all the horrific events that uh, happened. Back to what you were saying about the Black Square, a safe space collective was born out of that as well. It's like, how do we take action when we've like also signaled a certain allyship? And it's about also what you touch upon in your, in your article about uncomfortable subjects, representation, diversity, discrimination and racism that uh, it needs to be talked about and that there's also two sides of the story. The minority that is tired of talking about it and the majority that is afraid of talking about it. That was very much also one of the reasons for Safe Space to exist. It was for us, we all had in some ways a story we wanted to associate with and something to say and allow people to be part of that. The fact that it was also targeting specifically architecture was something that we were interested by. Personally, I've been involved in other movements and it's always this question of how do we make it count for our own field because it's always this uh, disconnection or we think it's not really related or we take our own personal experience on the side and the office or um, uh, field in another one, so I was really interested by this uh, specific targeting towards architecture. Most of the time, people really dissociate. They will be very categorical about things, so it has to be like either social or professional or something or something, and uh, could be considered like very irrelevant to intersect the subject. That's why we also wanted to tackle this uh, with an inter sort of like intersectional approach and really raise the questions within our own practice, not as a, a being, but also a professional. Like I said earlier, I'm coming from the field of art. And I think as an artist, it's easier to connect your identity to your practice in a way that is a little bit more difficult in the field of architecture, I guess. It's been a conversation that's been developing over some time and I'm coming from a Canadian context so it's been developing even longer there. It's interesting to sort of, within the field of architecture, kind of insist that the person, the author of a space or the, the practitioner, that identity and that background has also something to say in the spaces that you're designing, which I think is not something that has been addressed so much or there's been like a decision to take distance um, from one's identity in in the field of architecture or as an architect. One of the points in safe space really like to to allow people to express the fact that they need to be re represented within what they design and also the second aspect that people we design for need to feel represented within the space that we design for them. The whole podcast series that has been built 
is around those two aspects in some ways that who gets to design and then who we're designing for also in some ways. This is also um, a topic that um, architecture, at least the architecture field in Norway, hasn't really brought up in a meaningful way. Um, there are similar, I guess, like movements that is happening in the States, um, in, in Australia, other pretty quite comparable places. And it's strange that it hasn't happened here. So that's why there were uh, an urgency to to do this within this field. And I remember one of the things that triggered me the most while following the Black Lives Matter movement last year was this notion of systemic racism, systemic discrimination. It was not a new notion, but that it was being, being mainstreamed and, and everybody was talking about it. And I really got to reflect upon it because I think in many, many ways, uh, I, I have always felt that something was off or that there was sort of like issues that I was dealing with that I could not pinpoint, I could not put a name and put a word on it. And I think like systemic uh, inequality and, and, and structural discrimination had a lot to do with it. While constructing safe space, that's also what we would want to tackle because in architecture, I think it's a, it's a field that is not a front runner on so many aspects that the effects of these forms of discrimination is so hidden that uh, that we actually need to dig up to be able to understand what it means. I think there's a lack of discussing the culture within architecture. There's a lot of talk about styles, about methods, about how you form something, but not the very culture that produces uh, the physical, the actual physical things. And that has been, and that goes for when the Me Too movement was a thing, and now this. Uh, for some reason, the culture part has been uh, separated from the practice part. And you also see that with the recent um, uh, controversy at Ahu, where the students are now voicing out their concerns about working too much, uh, getting harsh, irrational feedback. So that relates to the disconnect between culture and practice and also reflecting over what kind of culture one is essentially facilitating for. I think this is also related to the fact that in architecture school, it's missing also a lot of how do you do human resources? How do you run an office? How do you interact with one another? It's still being thought as a practice of one person or sometimes two or three when you have a chance to have group uh, exercise. When you like start to be in an office or you start to establish your office, it's very difficult because you haven't been put into this notion of how the flow of information and communication and I've been surprised myself uh, during internship or working, how do we actually make sure that we communicate on the right way? So this cultural thing you're talking about, it's, it's inside of every relation we have in the in fields. Relating to culture and how to communicate, very important thing that early on in the project, in the communication between room and safe space, with this question of vocabulary, that was quite important about how to communicate about those topics, how to also identify what they mean and of the words that we use. Obviously, since the beginning, safe space has been described into tackling this idea of diversity and representation within the field of architecture. That's also two words which are very polemic. As Gabrielle mentioned, it's kind of an easy word that can have so much meaning, but 
also no meaning at all, depending on like how do you want to act regarding that that word and um, representation also in the same way. And I think we had a very interesting conversation during uh, the development of that project with uh, Tess Torsten, which wrote a PhD about racialized representation in Danish film. And I think she was identifying really two key elements regarding uh, representation, which I thought were really telling and uh, really interesting to kind of pinpoint for that project which was this idea of that there's kind of two categories within representation, misrepresentation and underrepresentation. And in pinpointing towards underrepresentation, she was identifying that it's when the representation of a given group, um, whether it be gender, sexuality, race, class, ability and color, do not correspond to the amount in the users or in the population studied. That's kind of really important because that's what we want to talk about within the population within practice, but also is reflected within the spaces that we are building. The majority of the spaces that we are building are also designed usually for the majority. So let's say it's for the man in some ways, and very few spaces can be designed for women or different groups. But then also under this question of misrepresentation, which is the second category, when we have certain group represented, how are they represented? And then also the stereotypes and position and essentialization in a certain way of those population that kind of also acts within the tropes and norms we can describe for feminine spaces, masculine spaces. We don't want this talk about diversity and representation to encourage for including minoritized population, bring them into a field that they're going to be discriminated against when they enter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think maybe there's two points I want to take here. Um, the first is the question of vocabulary that you're raising, but then also maybe I'll start with creating a field that is inclusive or creating a field that is or anyway, our ambition is to create a field that is eliminating this kind of discrimination. I mean, Tina and I have the privilege of working in an institution. And when we're talking about systematic discrimination, it's addressing discrimination, which is at an institutional level. So here we are inside of an institution and we have the possibility, um, if we have the endurance and enough I don't know, energy around us, we have the possibility to try and make change from within the institution, within a institution, and ask other institutions around us to participate in this conversation. So I think that was part of the motivation as well of having such an open call, which we're very happy that you uh, responded to, um, because I think this will be a really important project for creating discourse. Um, and as we alluded to earlier in this conversation, discourse is exactly what is missing within the field of architecture regarding this particular theme. So I think the fact that this is a project to create conversation, to create space for people coming from different backgrounds to, to talk about their ambitions and what they would wish to, have to see changed within the field, that is super valuable. Back to this discussion of vocabulary. Tina and I have been doing a lot of work ourselves around vocabulary, around the use of words, um, especially in a Norwegian context, because it's been, it is our criticism that in talking about discrimination and talking about racism, 
there is a lot of importation of often English words from a North American context, a British, a, an Australian context, imported into this country in Norway. Sometimes there isn't the best fit. And sometimes sort of a misuse of certain words, such as, I don't know, we were talking about the word segregation. In Norway, that word carries, or it has another meaning um, compared to in a North American context. And so what happens when you talk about raising segregation? It's kind of polarizing potentially because not everyone is going to agree on the premises of that particular word being used. And so how productive of a conversation can you have if not everyone is agreeing on a use of words? So I think we've been working a lot on how do we develop a, a language which is kind of more specific to the reality on the ground here in Norway. That's why we started on language and vocabulary uh, and simultaneously having discourse around starting to unpack, I guess, certain words and terminologies to really, I think that what we all uh, probably discovered is how um, how certain words that we've been using turns out to be something completely different. It has a completely different meaning that we thought it had, such as inclusive, right? We all thought inclusive was a good thing. It's a good thing. Like, who who, who can, you know, disagree with that, right? But then when you really break it down, it's uh, it's something that prescribes that someone has to be invited in, right? So there's a power dynamic here. It's the same with, uh, oh, you may have a seat at the table. Someone has to grant you that access or you have to create your own table, right? That's like a discovery that we all made during this process, the, the meaning of words and also how we use it and how that affects how we talk about all these things within the field. I have a question. We know that you've also been taking steps within Rome to develop this idea of vocabulary and ways of communicating about uh, diversity and representation in the field of architecture in Norway. And I was wondering, like, what are those steps? We started out with, we wanted to create a whole new language uh, or taking, I think we said that, what, 10 words? We wanted to create 10 words for, for the field of architecture in particular to talk about, to tackle uh, these topics. But we essentially, we are, we are inviting uh, different actors to participate in this experiment where they are going to essentially construct uh, new words that will perhaps benefit the field of architecture. So that's like, um, that's step one, changing the way we use words. And our way into this is by taking the language that urban planners and architects are using in this Norwegian context. So. We have two particular cases that we are referring to, um, taking excerpts from number one, the Omradarif, the sort of gentrification plan for both Tøyen and Grenland. Um, the, the, and this is a document which is written by the municipality of Oslo, stating sort of the, the wishes and the, the different communities that they intend to see a benefit for. Um, so we are taking some text from there. The other source is uh, some, I guess, a journalistic response to your original text, Tina, uh, which was published in Architeknit. So I guess that was the 
I guess like the first time I've seen the architecture field face this issue was at the architecture devoted a whole issue on this matter where they asked they asked people within the field about yeah how to how to essentially tackle these issues. So we've chosen some excerpts from that uh, from that issue to analyze and to see if we could find words that we could deconstruct and make something new out of it. We we actually tested the process on ourselves a couple weeks ago, going through this excerpt from the Oslo municipality plan about Tegen. Yeah, we, we kind of isolated specific words for ourselves that we thought, okay, this is, maybe this is problematic. Maybe this, this particular word could do with a replacement. Um, there was one word that we reacted a lot or we talked a lot about, and that was utsattegrupper which translates to vulnerable groups. groups. Within the context of this planning document, the wish is to allow social mobility to these vulnerable groups. So to allow people coming from different ethnic uh, minorities the chance to experience, be mixed with other different communities within the same space in a way that will allow for social mobility. But we both took issue with this word utsattegrupper because we felt it was kind of anonymous and it's a very political kind of low threshold word in the same way that diversity is a very low threshold word. You can keep on repeating it and repeating it in these political documents, bureaucratic documents, municipal documents, but at a certain point it becomes a bit invisible who this is and what this is meant to do and what happens if you lose sight of that specific group that you're trying to serve. We spent an hour talking about just that uh, term, Utsatagrippit. Uh, so it, it just demonstrates how if you spend enough time on a certain word or terminology, things start to pop up. Uh, it's very a dialectic approach uh, in many ways. But very also very useful. It's it's the the whole action of really think through what kind of words you're using when you're trying to make something happen. What did this author think when he or she decided to use the words "sotagrupper"? What was the intention? I feel like that exercise of like deconstruction is what we're trying to to do now every day because I feel like it's uh, yeah I I I think that's what maybe it's lacking a lot is that we constantly question ourselves on who we are and what we do and that the the notion of deconstruction is basically the unlearning of the established facts or the, the what is considered facts it's so i also lost my train of thoughts here <laughs> but um maybe norms like this idea of yeah, of like norms and standards, so everything that basically surrounds us that we just that we take as a given. No one has ever questioned this usage of words, right? It's taking it's it's an assumption that these are neutral words that they do not do any harm. They are merely descriptive of something. It's very interesting. I was teaching last semester in this course in um, masters at Ahu in transit that talks about. Uh, immigration and emergency architecture in a way and how this could be more how to find more permanent solutions for those problems which usually end up lasting for a long time and which are very present more and more within urban settings 
And uh, I think this question of terminology is always very sensitive in those cases. And I think what you're pointed at, pointing out with Itzata Gruppe is also this uh, notion that we kind of learned throughout our research of reductive transparency, which is by definition, you have we play into a field that is full of norms and uh, terminologies that usually are tied our normative framework fed by the hegemony of a majority that is then represented within the, this word. So by talking about the grouper, you kind of diminish the, like by definition, you kind of say that the people that you're talking about are not included in the conversation that you're having. You're having that conversation on about, their behalf. You're talking about them. Not them. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is also super interesting is like the limitation of the words and not wanting to name what we're facing is kind of like the second part of this representation need this misrepresentation maybe so next to the fluffy words in air quotes like diversity or representation that is so easy to use these days i think we have a lot of other terms that uh, might be very polemic for example decolonization i think uh, people have different perceptions and understanding of that, but uh, I think it has also a lot to, to do with basically questioning the established power relations, because colonialism is a practice that is still ongoing, and it's about uh, promoting and imposing culture of a, a more politically powerful um, state on a less powerful one. And I think it is still, it is not just physical, but it's also cultural and metaphysical. And uh, it's sometime the product of that is this form of hegemony that is so, so basically everybody is practicing what is preached from uh, sort of the top down. Um, yeah, no, it's being it's being reproduced. So no one is questioning it because it's, it's normalized. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think uh, when we talk about these, uh, you know, these terms or, or, or these concepts, I think people would get much more uh, aggressive or maybe offended. Uh, something that we need to address uh, in a way to be able to yet yeah, to deconstruct and reconstruct altogether because we cannot um, be divided when talking about the same issue. And I think we're, we're also talking about sort of a very fundamental issue about communication. No two people will have the same relationship to the same word. And the process of understanding one another is in kind of parsing out, negotiating, what do we mean here? And I think this is the ambition of creating this experiment around language that Tina and I are, are working on. Is Let's bring together a group of people who come from different backgrounds, have different careers, different levels of establishment in their career, who have, you know, coming from different countries, speak different languages, and let's not take the language that we have presented to us as a given. Let's take it down, let's try and compose something new that the 10 of us can all agree on. In a way, it doesn't matter the words that we create together. It's more the gesture of not taking things as a given. The, the gesture of, okay, what do you mean when you say this? I mean this when I say this. Can we find something else that means the same thing to the both of us? This is the ambition. That is also a principle that is essential to safe space because what is implicit in that, we need to sit down, we need to listen before speaking. There is a level of empathy, of understanding, of willingness to understand other people that needs to be there before we can actually have a constructive 
compensation. One thing we don't really want to fail in is take over the militant or activist words that have been there, for example, especially in the Northern America or uh, British context, just use them because then what often ends up it's texts that are being read by people that have the knowledge. So often you also disconnect again from the people you're actually trying to include in the conversation. Something that is really interesting, for example, the BIPOC, uh, it's really an American word. And in, in England, they were talking about it. Who are the indigenous people in England? Like, why do we use BIPOC? So I think to try to focus more on the meaning and trying to find this vocabulary together is really an interesting point you're raising. There's another project I think I'm very interested in knowing more about is a project that you, a part of uh, Gabrielle, which I think in some ways for me is also inspired from language and because you're working on that uh, project called Berdensrume. You have created a hashtag on social media to communicate about it, which is uh, hashtag aliens of extraordinary ability, which I think is a very beautiful also transformation of the perception of alien ability, if you want to talk more about that. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll start at the hashtag. I don't know if you're, if you're aware of the original source of that term. It's, it exists in an American, in, in American immigration law and I believe also in Canadian immigration law. In order to get a certain kind of visa, you have to qualify as an alien of extraordinary ability. And that means that you have specific talents that make you desirable to migrate into that particular country. I mean, these come in different, with different terms in different countries. There's like, I'm pretty sure there's a genius, there's like some kind of genius visa in other countries and yeah. Skilled immigrant, that's what they call it in Australia. Yeah, it is also the same thing here in Norway, a skilled immigrant. Varnsrome is a mutual support network that was established with the interests of non-European immigrants in Norway who are artists and or cultural workers because the process of migrating into this country is a little bit, it can be difficult, it can be murky, there's many mistakes that one can make along the way if you don't have helping hands to help to guide you and I think the wish of Varnsrome which I started with my colleague Rodrigo Gatas was to accomplish three things. The first was to provide support, mutual support to people who also identified in this way. The second was to lobby for change. When you're an individual there's only so much change you can accomplish when you're many, when you're a community, when you're wanting to change something in something so big and opaque as bureaucracy of a country, um, then you need, you need some power behind you and it's the power of many that we're trying to harness. And then the third task or the third sort of ambition was to raise awareness because in reality, we are, I think, 12,500 in general, non-European immigrants in Norway who are here on a permit for freelance work, which is typically the kind of permit you would have to do anything in the creative fields. That's not a very big number. And so you need, you also need the backing of like a greater community. We need the support of Norwegian cultural institutions as well. So to be able to inform people around us, to inform the institutions that would like to have international artists and creators amongst them, 
we need to tell them that, hey, did you know that it's actually really hard and unsustainable, actually, to migrate into this country as an artist. And this is a country that is priding itself on its international art scene or has this ambition to have an international art scene, but the conditions, the material conditions of immigrant artists, non-European immigrant artists, is in direct opposition of this ambition. Yeah, I think that you brought that also a lot to our own projects. I think very early on, and I think that's what we really enjoyed about this process of working with Room on that project, is like very early on you also helped us shape our project because we very much feel that safe space is this exploratory research. We're not experts at all. Then we're just very interested in creating something around it and creating momentum and allyship awareness. And I think this concept of community creation is something that you really brought to the project. I think we didn't see that potential in the podcast in the beginning. Giving a voice, letting people talk was part of the ambition, but bringing people together to also have role models uh, be a relatable project for everyone, like so representative, like people feeling represented within the topics that are tackled also ultimately creates that community. I think visibility is very important. I think that we have proved that this is something that a lot of people have been wanting, but there were no opportunity before. I've got emails from all kinds of people saying, thank God, finally someone said something and now we can really act on it. I think that the visibility is really good in order to create not only just representation, but also community, like with Vanessa So I think it might be very fruitful. One of the struggles, but also perks of this project is that we need and we want to anchor these discussions in Norway. So a lot of the time that we, you know, when we speak of these issues, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's on an international level. And I think uh, luckily in Norway, um, somehow these uh, forms of discrimination are less violent than other places that we have seen, but it also makes it harder to talk about such things. And it's always, it's, yeah, there's this implicit indifference, ignorance that it's, that, that is hard to address. No, it is because it's, because it hasn't been that violent. Although I have to point out there has been murders. And, and attacks. Like in the 90s, there were a huge attack in Rumendal, and then of course, Johanna got murdered by her uh, stepbrother in her own house, a girl who voiced several times of her concerns about this right wing uh, stepbrother of hers. And like, no one, yeah, I mean, like when she died, he was the one who got most attention, and then obviously the attack at the mosque. But because it hasn't occurred that many times publicly, it makes it hard to talk about because people do not recognize it as uh, an uh, urgent matter. Who do you see as your primary audience? Do you see your primary audience as a quote-unquote white European architecture field? You want them, you want them to come and see things from a whole other perspective, or? Are you speaking to another community of architects in Norway and trying or trying to shape a community and and give a space for recognition to see oneself kind of reflected in 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 what you're doing? We all have different inputs there. From my perspective, I was really focusing first maybe on the Norwegian audience and we had long discussion about whether it should be Norwegian or English at the same time. English also allowed this conversation to be 
broader and to um, to go beyond Norway in a way. I think that by talking to people, we also realize how great it is to to have these discussions. Like some people didn't thought so much about this discussion first. Some people had some ideas. Some people were finally so happy to be able to express on these specific topics. A bit balanced now because I know that we're reaching out to some people that are following and and like interested in the topics because they're quite honest and they say they don't know they were not really thinking that it was an issue before or they somehow related for example uh, even i don't know white norwegian women that suddenly understand like okay these kind of things i felt some other people feel it in different ways but also to give this space and this voice to um these other people we interviewed we understood that it's really great to have this reflection all together so I feel it's a balance now a bit. Our ultimate wish would be to reach out to everybody. That's uh, that would be the dream. During the podcast, we will tackle not only just the, the architectural thinking and production, but also access to architecture. So hence the people we would want to draw more people to this field. So it is impossible just to think that we're talking only to our fellow architects. Existing architects. What about the future architects? Exactly. I think we also we, we have a limited uh, time and resources for this first step of the project. So we need to start where we're considered experts, maybe. So we, we need to start within our own field and trying to reach out as much as possible to first the yeah, our colleagues in Norway, but also yeah, through the dissemination of the project in English uh, to a broader uh, international scene. The two aspects that you brought up are very important to the project because they've been a discussion since the beginning, like how to frame the topics that we want to touch upon, uh, how to frame the discussions, what form do we want. I think we've reached out to so many people from different backgrounds, different frameworks of action, like whether it be being educators, being parts of institutions, being practicing architects, being uh, students, but also even being in the creative field at large, not solely architecture. I mean, it's been also quite interesting to understand the level of awareness regarding the question, but also the consciousness of people like being minoritized, not necessarily realizing it in some ways. And throughout the conversation, personal first-hand experience, testimonies and everything, we've managed to also develop really conversations that create this questioning also personally and we really want to cater more towards building a community because we do have the feeling that it's probably the first thing that can happen because if you relate to the topic in some ways and you identify and you're making visible issues that people can relate to it's going to be easier than to involve let's say the white majority that essentially is not so concerned about the topic from the beginning, so it's about also communication. How do we reach to that audience and how to make them involved that we want to also Yeah, no, that wasn't one of the original thoughts behind my text was how little mobilization it was uh, within the minority fields. This is something that we didn't use to talk about. Uh, we were quite specific about who we talk about these things with uh, due to possible repercussions. Um, because it hasn't been been raised before, I was worried when I, when when it was first published and I got a new job, I I was a little bit worried about how the office would would take it. 
uh, luckily it was fine but um I think like for some minorities, the stakes are larger than for the white majority. It's it's about the different kinds of of a capital, like social capital. You might risk to lose social capital, cultural capital, which you have perhaps spent more time and effort to accumulate than perhaps the majority. So I think that the stakes were were pretty high, and thus the need uh, for visibility and and then mobilization and community. Our approach. To safe space is really not to point fingers, but to start with a statement that we're all part of the system and we're all, one way or another, contributing to to that system. We're, we're definitely not saviors or not the most uh, aware people on earth, and we're doing this also as an exercise to ourselves. It's something that we we need first and foremost. I think we we're inviting everybody to unlearn and learn. With us. That's also why we developed all of these topics that are so different. So coming from who are in the office of architecture today, like cultural background, but also who are at school, like is there there you know some some locks that has to be unlocked to in order to get diversity, but also the 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 the, the greenness or the climate relations or the submit territories and try to make sure that we're not seeing diversity and representation in one way but in diverse because I think it also means uh, different things for all of us. This notion of deconstruction is also interesting in I think what you pointed out earlier on in the conversation that power relations are very important. I think deconstruction of power relation is kind of fundamental to representation and that goes into any kind of topic that you want to talk about when there is kind of a discrimination that goes into climate injustice that goes to queerness in architecture in yeah and the built environment and i think that's also something that we're very interested in for some reason even though the vision residency hadn't started but uh, we feel like we we already managed to to pose the first bricks for building this community because like the more people we we meet i think the more tolerance to like resilience we're building for ourselves as well because i think we started out the project thinking that people shift or uh, like there must be people out there thinking the th like the same thing that we yeah, sitting alone with uh, uh, and there were struggles in the beginning you know like finding these people that we can share ideas with uh, but then it also it also made us realize like how yeah people are dealing with the same issues in very different ways and we uh, ourselves needs to be understanding to be able to 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 yeah to collectivize and talking about the people we have i think that was maybe the most wonderful experience is you're talking to one person that tells you oh do you know about this person and this person and then you start to connect and at the end you, you end up interviewing people that tell you about the people you're interviewing already next time. So it was really, really great to see that this network is almost there already. And it's um, the space in a way. The platform. The platform. Maybe in that process of creating safe space, I think you've been able, Tina and Gabriel, to also witness maybe the difficulty within the project sometimes to find speakers. And I think that's something that you pointed out from the get-go in yeah. your article. No, it is difficult because you haven't seen them. I never seen someone like me in my field being that public. So that's why when I tried to find more diverse, quote-unquote, speakers, it was quite hard. So I guess <laughs> I had to be that person and to get the um, to get the ball rolling. But it has been really difficult. You have to look under rocks that you didn't know existed. Uh, you had to um, 
find niche uh, areas of research in order to find the right people, to find the right topic, to find yeah unanswered, unaddressed issues. Doesn't that justify the whole reason to be for that article? So when I raise the question of diversity and representation, I think most people do realize, okay, let's look around us in this office or in this work environment. We do see that what we only see people like us. I, I, I think that is the, a question that nobody, like people rarely ask. Like, why would that be relevant for the work that we do? And uh, it is undeniable that we live in a world dominated by a specific figure, which is the white, male, cisgender, heterosexual person. And, uh, middle class. Middle class. I mean, like, there's an, an inter- intersectionality in it that is that is that is very important. That class, race, gender, sexuality, disability, everything actually combines to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. Uh, even though maybe I, I think like somehow like this figure has become so ubiquitous that it is invisible. It's blind spots. I don't know how much like personally I haven't. Uh, experience discrimination within the field. What I've experienced is blind spot because it hasn't been addressed. But that that's for me personally. But I think that in Norway and, and architecture, we haven't really talked about the reasons why it's so hom- homogenous, right? Why is why is it a certain class that applies to these schools? Why are there uh, childrens of architects who keep applying? Why is it only people from the west side of also who who is applying, right? So those questions haven't been haven't been um, been answered yet. Also, like yeah, the role models that we've been studying, the way that things have been shaped, have always revolved around like the same human figure, and uh, by just injecting and, and fostering a hospitable environment for more diverse voices and bodies to. To, to express themselves, I think that is the core of any field, to like create a field. Even more important, so maybe sometimes within the creative field, which seems to be in architecture, running behind constantly, not being very proactive and willingly making the effort of being more inclusive, where like celebration of the plurality of subjectivities, celebration of diversity, can only be beneficial for our profession, but for our production, I think. And it's not a question about whether a a white male can or cannot design for everybody. It's not we're not putting uh, an individual's ability uh, to design in question. We're we're talking about like the uh, the the, these issues on a structural institutional level that we all somehow maybe subconsciously participate in. And that's one of the reasons why people have been um, skeptical because they initially thought it was that we were throwing uh, aspersions at the white male architect. No one is, is doing that. There are tons of great ones. We study them every day. So, you know, no doubt. But what we are asking is, can we make this space more generous? I guess that's what we are essentially asking for, to make that room bigger. Yeah, then I also had a question like from developing this project with whom I think we never asked the question why were you interested in Safe Space, which was a project about this podcast? Number one, Rome has always wanted a podcast. This this was like a wish from the board, uh, you know, from the very start that they wanted a podcast. Second of all, maybe that perhaps like the most important reason I think is that you did tick all of our, our boxes or wishes 
um, your pitch was what we wanted. It was what we envisioned the contributions to be like. It was addressing the very questions that we were uh, that we did ask from the beginning. You and I, Tina, have we've been talking a lot about okay, how do we generate these discussions within Rome? Here you come with a project about generating these discussions that we could then just host at Rome, and so it felt like a really good, interesting way to to bring in um, others who have other viewpoints than we do to create this discourse that we've been feeling has been missing. So it just, you really filled a void for us. And it was a very kind of exciting proposal you sent us, covering so many different topics from, you know, racial discrimination to queer topics to this with indigenous and Sakmi uh, narratives. And that just felt like exactly what we needed. <laughs> the potential of longevity uh, was also something we talked about. We didn't want an exhibition or two and then that chapter of the room would be closed like oh look they gave like some minorities some space and then that's it. We, we did not want that to happen so that's um, that's why this process has been taking so long it's been exhausting so it's been a, it's been an experiment in, in itself really. Just within the five of us and also Yatrud who have been instrumental to the project. Uh, the way that we've been leading this process already exemplifies the point of safe space in a way. We have managed to create a community within us six, uh, nine months, six months now, and we've learning so much from each other. It was really a long process with a lot of uncertainties. Maybe we would want to share with people how it has come. Last August, uh, we responded with just the idea of a podcast. Uh, covering thoughts that we tried together but it was inexistent like in any material form we started working on it last uh, fall winter but i think it was like it was defeated until january 2021 uh, we didn't expect we didn't know and probably most people wouldn't know that uh, the project runs on a on a very low initial budget extremely low that would not allow us to do a lot low budget and and big not big names but the majority some some majority people would would doubt whether or not it's it's relevant like it's a it's automatically an underdog situation but room does have a history of raising the voices of underdogs this is not the first time we fostered a bunch of uh, icons <laughs> we're really grateful also of the way we've been working together so having meetings often with uh, Rome, like uh, ever, every second week, because we've had this uh, between ourselves, I don't think we counted the numbers of meetings we have in between, but it's been really, uh, really interesting to have this uh, also groups of people following us and um, and make the project evolve into its, what it is today. So, so because of this lack of, um, of budget we have been working on getting fundings whether it is public or private the results came uh, late in the process but better late than never and right now we, we feel very lucky to have received a certain amount uh, of yeah, funding that really that, that that will now allow us to do to at least to kickstart what we do um, so we would definitely want to thank everybody who has participated who has participated in supporting this project.
Um, hopefully we can do the other part, the BIM, which will be a publication that hopefully we also get support for and that will help also to disseminate the project. Of course, this process of asking, asking for money and asking other people, be it private or public councils, art councils, whatever, to take a leap of faith when you haven't done the project yet. The work is still, I mean, of course, you're laying the groundwork. But the heart of the project hasn't happened yet. The conversations haven't happened yet until today. It is, it is difficult to try and convince people of what you will do and, and try and get them on board. And, and it's fantastic. You've done a fantastic job of, of painting that picture because you have been getting uh, support. So I think that's... That just says a lot about the potential of this project and how well you've been communi communicating about it. For us, the learning curve in this project has been exponential in the way in, in, in ways that we could not, not imagine because working, so we were all working as employees in architecture, so it, it has a completely different dynamic. You're given a project to, to execute, to design and execute, and you're paid for that monthly, and this is nothing like that we have to start with just an idea without a project asking money for an uh, for a project that does not exist and uh, also like the maybe the issue of, uh, of this specific project being in between a social and a professional project sometimes it, it might not be considered you know foggy enough to be granted funding so it's uh, we i think we i hope that by the end of this uh, we will in, just enjoy the difficulties that 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 have that have taught us so much about the it's just different ways of doing things, and I think it's it's also part of the project is that we need to we need to understand we need to know what how things are done differently in different contexts to be able to empathize and accept. Thanks everyone for this conversation and for this day, and that was I think a great introduction to to this project. Thank you as well. Thank you so much. It's been really nice to talk to you guys about this project. Yeah, it's been a it's been a real pleasure and uh, uh, something that was sorely missed. Thank you for coming. <laughs>